Broadway Bullet, Volume 817, Broadway Masterclass, for April 25th, 2018. Don't miss a single episode of Broadway Bullet. Subscribe for free through iTunes, broadwaybullet.com, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. recently opened on Broadway, and we got a chance to talk with Jeremy Chernick, the effects designer for this tech-heavy production. He talks about his job and work on the show, Aladdin, and others, as well as offering techniques to achieve FX gold on a dime budget. Following this, we have two excerpts from what might as well be called Broadway Master Classes. Broadway lyricist Glenn Slater has been writing with arguably two of the most influential composers of the past 40 years, Andrew Lloyd Webber and Alan Menken. He has two shows currently running on Broadway, wrote lyrics for Gallivant on television, and has a career it is safe to assume that any lyricist would sell their soul for. He didn't sell his soul, however, but spent years honing his craft. Here he shares some of what he has learned. Book writer Rick Ellis came into the theater by an unusual route and became a book writer later than some others, but he has made a huge impact since his debut with Jersey Boys, taking in a Tony nomination for that show and a second for Peter and the Starcatcher. With more shows in the works, this new titan discusses his various theories about what different techniques make a book work, using examples from his past and upcoming shows. The full versions of all these interviews are available in their complete unedited form at broadwaybullet.com, so be sure to check those out. Now, let's discover how the masters of Broadway do their thing. thanks to our location sponsor. Writers need a full community of support in order to do their important work. That's where DGF steps in. The Dramatist Guild Foundation is a national charity that fuels the future of American theater by supporting playwrights, composers, lyricists, and book writers at all stages of their careers. They do this by sponsoring educational programs, providing emergency aid to writers in need, and offering a free rehearsal space where I've recorded this episode. For any questions about how DGF might be able to help you, please visit dgf.org. Special thanks to our travel sponsor. I'd like to thank uh, my school, the University of Providence. They are our travel sponsor. They pay for me to get there as well as a student to come help out and meet all these people and stay there. And this is all because it relates to the program that I created. It's the School of Theater and Business Arts. You learn the art of being an artist and the business of being an artist, because it is important. If you hear anything in this show, it's that these artists have to treat themselves as an entrepreneurial business. And you learn how to do that as well as your art at 
the University of Providence. Check us out. There's a link at broadwaybullet.com. And uh, if you are a senior or junior, come on out and visit us. We'd love to see you. Up close. I love talking with people behind the scenes on Broadway Bullet. They often have the real dirt on what's going on behind the scenes. And I have not yet, though, talked to somebody who is specialized in special effects on stage. So we are so lucky to have Jeremy Chernick stopping by. Uh, I'm sure frantically working on the next effect in Frozen opening (laughs) in March. I think a couple people are expecting that show to be like, do okay business. They are. (laughs) They're doing it. They're expecting it to do okay. Yeah, it has a big song that a lot of people want to hear. (laughs) And hopefully want to see. Yeah. And hopefully want to see. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we did that in Denver. So it was out of town. And uh, it went really well. And we're going to make some improvements and tighten it up and... It'll open on 44th Street at the St. James Theater in, towards the end of March. So I guess first off, how does one get in or start specializing doing special effects? And- um, for me, it was, a, it was a lot of sort of happy accidents uh, because I don't think that it's a real... It, it, it's not a, a job that anyone says, like, I'm going to go and do this. Yeah. Uh, I could take that back and film yeah. it's a job. Um, yeah. And, but a lot of those people who do it are the children of people who did it. And so there's a sort of uh, a legacy portion to doing special effects. And I have no legacy. Uh, <laughs> but I started doing it. I uh, had my own theater company in the later 90s in Austin, Texas. And um, it was myself and two others. And we made these sort of exactly the kind of shows that people make in their young 20s. <laughs> uh, shows that where we did whatever we wanted and we uh, thought we were breaking all the rules, which in fact, we <laughs> all the rules have been broken too many times yeah. to break anymore. Um, but we made all the shows ourselves. And um, those shows were very sort of puppet heavy and gore heavy. <laughs> and uh, so, so we did a lot, we sort of sorted out a lot of things um, without having any sort of back knowledge. Um, And I've always been sort of handy. And then uh, magically from there, I started doing props uh, and got hired at Juilliard, which I didn't have any business getting that job (laughs) because I hadn't really done props uh, in any uh, official capacity. But I I was always sort of good and handy and communicative. Um, and so you're just teaching props or doing props for them? Uh, it's the- a sort of combination. Mm-hmm. At Juilliard, it's a full production department mm-hmm. that runs uh, the drama and the opera and dance. So there's they, they do more shows than almost anyone I've ever <laughs> imagined because of the multi-departmental environment. But you're certainly working with the students. It's not in a direct teaching capacity in terms of a mm-hmm. class, but... You're making props. You're working with the students on how to behave around props. You're sort of creating a you know well-rounded performer, uh, and so in that sense, yes. Um, so, but I was in Lincoln Center then, uh, in the campus of Lincoln Center, and through a variety of ways, I started getting phone calls from other departments in Lincoln Center, and uh, at the time. Uh, at that time, it was in early 2000s, uh, the Lincoln Center Festival, 
was doing a lot of really exciting and interesting international shows that they were bringing in from all over the world. And it happened to be post 9-11. And they decided to bring in a very large troop of Iranians to do a uh, Iranian passion play. And although they did get all the Iranians into the country, they did not get their props <laughs> and weapons <laughs> into the country. And so I, I uh, helped get a bunch of swords that were period correct. You're a weapon smuggler. Uh, yes. <laughs> I, I found weapons all over the country that worked for them, and I started there. And then um, the following year, so I think this is in, two, I'm guessing, but I think yeah. it's 2003 now, uh, they did a show called The Orphan of Zhao, uh, directed by Chen Shizhen, and the produ production manager at Lincoln Center Festival called me, and I went to his office, and he, his name was Paul, is Paul King, uh, and he said to me, can you make me, uh, can you make blood for me at $1.75 a gallon? <laughs> and I said, yes. Which was half true because I didn't know whether it was true. I or always not. tell people just say yes, and then <laughs> and um, and then I went about making different samples of blood, um, and it turned out that that show needed about two thousand gallons of blood. Wow! And it was uh, so myself and a bunch of stagehands took a lot of disgusting ingredients and made two thousand gallons of blood and made this giant lake of blood. That had the show was beautiful and it had a white platform in the middle of it that was covered in paper, mm -hmm. and all the performers would walk through the blood and then up onto this platform and they would make patterns on it. It was absolutely gorgeous. But in re, in uh, getting back to how I got this job, yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I didn't realize at the time, but there were quite a few actual legitimate special effects companies that wanted to make and deliver this blood. And uh, they get, I got that job, unbeknownst <laughs> to me that it was an actual job. And um, so as soon as that was over and that, that worked out, uh, I got a few phone calls from strangers saying, asking me to come in for an interview. And uh, so uh, from there, essentially, I suddenly was offered much, uh, <laughs> some very exciting opportunities and I ended up doing my first Broadway show as a special effects person, which was not at a designer level. I just mm -hmm. made a bunch of really fun stuff for Tarzan the Musical. Okay. And then my second show on Broadway was um, The Pirate Queen, which very few people yeah. remember. <laughs> I, I, I talked to, I think that's when I talked to Stephanie Block. Was when she... Yeah, so there. <laughs> so I, I, I've done, from there I sort of, diverted into more Broadway shows, but still have done a ton of uh, Lincoln Center shows. And uh, so I, I, for a long time, had my hand in a lot of different worlds. And even now I work on television and I work on theater pieces mm -hmm. and dance pieces and photography shoots. And so, so I've, I've always tried to be very diverse in the work that I do. Yeah, I think that's always a good mm -hmm. thing. Well, what can you? I'm sure there's a lot of trade secrets you can't tell us about Frozen, which I think people are dying to hear about. Um, <laughs> and uh, but what can you tell us about oh, what, what you're doing with the special effects? I think that so Frozen's being done in I think a, a really beautiful way. Um, the director is Michael Grandage, and he uh, is a British director who has a very sort of Shakespearean background and a Shakespearean take to. Uh, what is it uh, surprising for a Disney musical, I think. 
Um, and so he's very he's a very subtle director who's into really getting the uh, story moments and acting moments uh, to shine. And so in a lot of ways, Frozen is a super interesting and exciting uh, opportunity for someone who does special effects. Because if I had my way, <laughs> special effects would be um, invisible to the audience. It wouldn't be a, and now we're going to do this big moment that is going to knock your socks off. It's just, uh, for me, the best special effects in theater are the ones where you don't notice them at all or don't think about, like, how did that happen? Um, but they're really, part, like, embedded in the, the, the fabric of the whole piece. And so in Frozen, a lot of the times, that's what we're doing. Um, <clears throat> we're creating sort of a, an under, a, a background uh, vocabulary that is Elsa, the magical ice princess's mm -hmm. uh, environment, especially once she becomes powerful. So a, a good example is that when she's walking around in her ice palace or uh, sort of wherever she goes, there's sort of a cold, foggy feel to wherever she goes and, and what's around her. Um, and I can say that. And, and that, <laughs> that's a very exciting uh, opportunity to sort of uh, help to define that character in a way that is not punchy in the face effect, mm -hmm. but uh, a, a subtle effect that's working with costumes and working with, uh, in this case, video mm -hmm. Uh, projection design and the scenery so that we're all um, working cohesively to sort of create this uh, Elsa walked in, <laughs> we're going to now make a whole environment around her that is telling so much story for her and so that the actors can shine. So that, that was really exciting. Um, other things that are exciting to me about that, which are very technical, <laughs> is we are uh, able to do things like smoke effects in a way that uh, on Broadway uh, I don't think have been done before. We are bringing in some technologies that have not uh, been traditionally done on Broadway but come from other kinds of industries. So we've been able to sort of branch out and take ideas that are not traditionally theater and use them in theater. We've also gotten to invent a couple of uh, different ways of delivering snow that are not traditionally, uh, in some cases, have never been done before. So we got to make some machines. And that's been really, really fulfilling and exciting. Um, and in a lot of ways is what's great about being able to work for a company like Disney is that they are uh, the producers at Disney and Tom Schumacher is super into uh trying to figure out a new way of doing something that might be more subtle or more interesting or just different than has been done before. And um, of all the producers that I've worked with, he, you know, they are the champions of how do we do it better or differently? And that's been fantastic. Um, I've done a bunch, uh, a, quite a few shows with them and they're super supportive <laughs> of a very strange job. <laughs> <laughs> How often do you get it wrong and have to go back to the drawing board? A I mean, ton. Yeah. <laughs> a ton. Um, I get it. Uh, that, uh, I can't speak for all other areas, but I would say that my uh, job has a very high level, level of um, 
uh, failure is, the, is perhaps yeah. the wrong word, yeah. but things that don't work, certainly yeah. don't work the first time, and sometimes don't work exactly how everyone imagined. Uh, nowadays, uh, because of film and CGI and um, a sort of and a youthful take on theater that I think has become very perva- pervasive, especially in uh, straight plays and smaller plays, which I still do a lot of work on, um, or with young directors, there is a learning curve that I find I have to work within, um, which is that doesn't work in theater, or that is really a movie, mm-hmm. and in order to do that, we you'd have to build the entire show around this one yeah, moment yeah, yeah. and it's not going to be successful. A good example to me is, um, you know, the violent, I do a ton of violence in theater mm-hmm. and the violence level over the last, I would say, decade. You're talking about other than two stage designers who ask you to do the impossible. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, but like, you know, uh, playwrights are writing, yeah. uh, are writing, very violent shows and um, often directors want it to be super hyper film realistic. Um, Also shows are written in almost like a film edited form and you have to conform to that in special effects. Um, And so, yeah, a lot of times I think what people are expecting and what they get are not exactly the same. And a big part of, I think what my job is, is communicating that as clearly as possible before anything mm-hmm. else happens. I work in, I do a lot of demonstrations for directors and producers and other designers before we ever put it into a show so that we can see what it's going to look like and everyone can sort of speak the same language and not be surprised later. Because absolutely I have uh, had issues with um, people who expected the film to show up, the film version to show up, and, yeah. it, and sometimes that's not possible. Um, so, as, so we work hard to, uh, to correct that before we do it. <laughs> um, how often, when you talk about these fight, you know, mm-hmm. directors wanting stuff, do you find that there's a big difference? Are there a lot of these people that haven't experienced what it's actually like to film the fight in a film? Because um, I mean, we look and see that a film looks hyper-realistic, but it's just as... Oh, there, so is, there, is there a disconnect even on how it's done? Um, even it, it depends on the director. Yeah. It depends on the, on the group. And it depends on the actors. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I've, done a, I've done a bunch of shows with the director, Trip Coleman, and he's directed quite a few different shows that have super youthful casts, some of whom are stage actors and some of whom are from film backgrounds. And um, uh, a lot of those shows have violence in them of some form or another. And um, it's funny because there was an actor I was talking to on uh, a show called Punk Rock that we did for the Manhattan Class Company. And he had done some film violence where a person who does my job would literally be standing right below the camera with a, like, paintbrush full of fake blood Mm -hmm. and just flick it up onto his face which here we can't do those types of things. Everything has to be hidden and seamless. And um, Trip, who is amazing in his uh, ability to both understand how to work with those young actors and what he wants and pushes boundaries in a way that I find super exciting. Um, 
Uh, we ended punk rock. It's a terrible ending. It's uh, high school, and it takes place in a library in the end, and an, uh, one of the characters comes on and does a mass shooting. Mm -hmm. And he wanted that to be uh, very, very powerful, very poignant and horrifying. So it's hard enough to sit in a 200-seat theater and watch a, what mm -hmm. seems to be a high school actor take out a gun and shoot a bunch of people. It's uh, even harder to actually splatter blood on the wall mm -hmm. and to do that. And the ways that I've talked to actors and dealt with actors on that is, uh, and worked with the fight choreographer in that case, um, who was Dave, uh, J. David Brimmer, um, was is to just talk to actors about how, in this case, you can't, you have to stop acting for a second. No one will know, <laughs> but in it, it, which is hard for young actors often, but you have to like take yourself out of the acting and just go through the physical motions of, of what we're asking you to do, as unnatural or silly as they kind of are when you think about it. Um, because once I sort of take mm -hmm. over in my, we're talking about min, you know, two seconds of a whole play, yeah. um, I'm helping them tell that story by splattering blood or doing that sort of thing for them. Um, so, a, and, and every actor is different. In that show, Punk Rock, there was a young woman who, and a young actress who was absolutely terrified of the whole scene and doing all of the mm -hmm. things we were asking of her. And we ended up modifying that to make her life more palatable mm -hmm. eight shows a week. And there was one actor who loved it and was super into it, and we shot a giant blood cannon mm -hmm. uh, from behind him against the wall. So he had he had his brains splattered <laughs> against the wall, um, and he wanted more. Mm. So we found ways to add even more levels to him uh, uh, that really I think was great. Uh, so we have you just have to you have to work with everyone. Well, it has been fascinating talking. I'd love to get you maybe back on again for some of the other shows. And, cool. Uh, um, I definitely know. I bet there's a bunch of like little small, little independent theaters that are really thanking you for coming on and, and sharing some of the stuff. Absolutely, it's been great. Yeah, Jeremy Chernick. Everybody, go catch that. You know, underdog of a show that is opening. <laughs> you know, it's. <laughs> it's a subtle small show that no one's heard of <laughs> frozen in march <laughs> and uh rush to catch it it might not last long yeah I know. <laughs> certainly won't tour everywhere <laughs> thank you so much for stopping by it's been a pleasure thank you <laughs> Listening room. Before we get to our excerpt of our interview with Glenn Slater, I thought I'd play a song that he did the lyrics to that I got a chance to see on Broadway the last time he was in town. This is Stick It to the Man from School of Rock. And I tell you, watching it on stage, it was absolutely a truly thrilling musical theater number, just fully buoyed by the incredible musicianship and energy of the kids on Broadway. So before our interview, here is Stick It to the Man. Crushed you in its fist When the way you're treated Has got you good and pissed There's been one solution Since the world began Don't just sit and take it Stick it to the man Rant and rave and scream and shout Get all of your aggression out They try to stop you Let them know exactly where they all can go And do it just as loudly Stick it to the man Hate the way they treat 
close. Yeah. I mean, would you, I mean, as you applied to the BMI workshop, would you, I mean, would you ever have dreamed that you would be doing lyrics for, because, oh God, no. Megan and Weber? Well, (laughs) you know, I mean, with Alan, The Little Mermaid, the film, came out when I was uh, in college. Mm -hmm. And when the New York Times Mm -hmm. review came out, it was like, this is the best Broadway Mm -hmm. show that's not on Broadway. It was like, well, I have to go see that now. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just sat there just in in awe. I mean, it was was just perfect. And you listen to a song like Part of Your World, and it's, well, that's how you write a ballad. Mm -hmm. You know, that's how you write a ballad that doesn't sound like a musty relic of a different Mm -hmm. era. It felt... Contemporary. It felt timeless. It was. It felt conversational. It soared. It did everything that you wanted a, a, a ballad to do. And um, you know, every film after that, it, I would go to the day it came out. What have they? What have these guys come up with next? It's and it was just one success, one yeah. triumph after another. And watching those movies was like a a master class in how to write. Um, the idea that I would actually get to sort of follow in their footsteps and then work yeah. actually with Alan was shocking. Um, likewise with Andrew, um, you know, I, I had actually performed in Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat as a sixth grader. It was like mm-hmm. our sixth grade play. Mm-hmm. Um, in my mind, Andrew was this sort of unattainably distant mm-hmm. <laughs> legend of the musical theater. <laughs> not, the, not somebody who I'd actually sit in a room with and have a conversation with, let alone work with. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of amazing. Uh, that long story, um, every, everybody who works in musical theater comes into it in a different way and makes their way in a different way and finds success in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, as that story sort of attests, I got very lucky a lot of times. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's that old adage that luck is, only happens when you sort of create the circumstances for luck to happen. So yeah. I guess I can say that I created circumstances where that could happen, but um, well, you also showed yeah. clearly showed a great deal of flexibility. I mean, I, th- a, a, I know a lot of writers that being told that they weren't that great of a composer, would you try a lyricist, for instance, would like kind of raise their hackles and go, "No, you know, screw you." Yeah, <laughs> um, you know, I, I was a I, I was an English major in college, yeah. and I had plans of becoming a novelist as well at one point, um, and so for me the composing wasn't so much about just making music. It was about telling stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I, that's what I really love to do is tell stories. So being told, well, maybe, maybe music is not your mm-hmm. best language was more for me. Uh, okay. Let me then see if there's a, a better language for me to tell it in rather than no, I must make music mm-hmm. and that's it. Um, and honestly to this day, um, while I'm usually credited as the lyricist, mm-hmm. much of what I do is more dramaturgical and more storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, I usually work very closely with the book writers um, from the outlining steps onward. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm always thinking of, in terms of the arc of the story, the arc of the characters, the architecture, um, how to make themes that are introduced in the beginning land at the end. Uh, I'm, I'm always thinking more like a dramatist in a lot of ways than I am as a songwriter. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I don't really break it down into lyrics and book and music. It, it really does feel like it's all one thing. 
with a couple of people holding the different roles at different times. Mm-hmm. Oh, the, the, there's just... <laughs> I know, I, I, I keep getting as far afield from where we started. Yeah, no, they're, 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 yes, I remember what I was um, But yeah, I mean, so, so I, I, I fell into very lucky situations many times, and um, one thing seemed to lead to the next in sort of uh, happenstance, uh, and I'm just sort of going for the ride and enjoying it. Well, none of that. And I just remember what I was going to ask. Am I am I wrong? It feels like the career of a soul lyricist doesn't exist near as much today mm-hmm. as it did thirty years ago. Um, it's mm-hmm. it's certainly harder to find. Mm-hmm. Um, what you find a lot of times now are, is either somebody who does both, um, and that's because we now live in, a, in an era of rock and pop yeah. music where the singer songwriter is supreme mm-hmm. rather than. The, yeah. The circumstances in which theater music began, where there would be songwriters in a room and then a performer who they would sell the song to. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there's, I think, out in the world a perception that authenticity comes when you are writing what you feel from a point of view that you're feeling it from and in the language that you would be saying it in, which sort of favors people who do the whole thing themselves. Um, or you find teams yeah. Um, who... Yeah, that's a- who start working together fairly young and develop a sort of symbiotic relationship. And in those teams too, there's, it's hard to tell where one begins and where one ends um, because they, it becomes that kind of a, it gets passed back and forth. Um, But it's, it's definitely a different model than the golden age model. And and if anything, your career, your career seems to yeah. harken back to kind of that golden age model. A little yeah, bit well, I'm, I'm a little bit of an outlier because, you know, I, Alan's symbiotic <laughs> lyricist obviously was Howard Ashman, yeah. who he, you know, unfortunately yeah. lost. And Andrew's symbiotic lyricist was obviously Tim Rice, who yeah. he lost. And so both of them sort of have the memory of what it's like yeah. to have that, while now being by far the dominant partner in any in any songwriting relationship they start up. So I, there's a different dynamic at work. Mm-hmm. And it does require me to sort of, to be more flexible and to, um, not flexible within each relationship, but mm-hmm. re- flexible across the relationships. Meaning figuring out, w- sitting in a room with Andrew is different than sitting in a room with Alan, and that's different than sitting in a room with any of the other people I yeah. collaborate with. So it's finding each time it's it's starting new. It's finding the right style, figuring out how that relationship is supposed to work, and trying to get into the into the rhythm of it as quickly as I can. Now, are there other composers you work with as well? Uh, I've done several things with Steve Weiner. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm working on a project now with my wife, who's a composer and a lyricist named Wendy Wilf. Okay. Uh, we have a show called Beatsville, which just had its world premiere at the Oslo Rep down in Sarasota, Florida, and is going next to the Fifth Avenue in Seattle, and will hopefully come into New York soon. Yeah. Uh, and on that, she did both music and lyrics, uh, and I just did the book. Okay. Uh, so a very different kind of, yeah. kind of collaboration. Um, I've been working with uh, a composer named John Androsik, who records under the name Five for Fighting. Uh, oh, okay, yeah. sort of like I, a, I, I, I actually love his music. Yeah, so, yeah. a fantastic composer. Uh, <laughs> And uh, we started on a project that, unfortunately, uh, the rights talks collapsed. Um, but we're, we're about to start on something new. Uh, and 
again, having had that first mm. experience, we've again very different yeah. relationship, very different yeah. way it works. Since he comes from the pop world and mm. I come from the theater world, um, and so we had to sort of balance those elements again. But I uh, very exciting going forward, uh, and I'm I'm talking to a few other people from that world as well uh, about ongoing the next steps. So, how many shows are you working on at any given time? Um, <laughs> You know, I, I think in the in the theater world, I think there are two models. There's either the Sondheim model of one thing, mm -hmm. and that's all you're thinking about all the time, and you're and I think that's a model that you can do when you know that your next show is going to be produced somewhere, mm -hmm. and where there's a sort of a, a pipeline. There, the world is waiting for your next work, yeah. and you just have to focus on it and do it, and there it is. Um, when you're still trying to sell your work and trying to find the investors and find the theaters. Um, a project can get derailed at any moment. Yeah. And so I think the other model is you keep four or five things in mm -hmm. the air at any given time. Uh, and you try to make them as different as possible and in as many different media as possible mm -hmm. so that you always have something going on. Where you're, something going on when you're writing songs, mm -hmm. something going on when you're selling ideas, something going on where you're making relationships, and something going on when you're thinking about story and plotting yeah. and outlining uh, and so I usually have at least four or five things at a time in different stages and of different kinds uh, because there's always a lull in three of them where one comes to the four and then that one goes into a you're waiting for a producer or you're waiting for casting and then something else comes up and you work on that for a few months and then that subsides while you're waiting and then the next thing pops up. Uh, it's exhausting. I. Uh, Radio audiences can't see this, but I have huge bags under my eyes. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> uh, but I, but I, I do try to keep as many things up in the air as I can. Um, there's one thing I'm wondering, and if I'm wondering, and I bet a lot of other people are, um, let's assume especially at, at a little bit more of a not Glenn Slater level. <laughs> um, how much effort, how complete, how, how orchestrated, how do our demos need to be when we're pitching around to possibly actors or producers or co-writers? You know, I mean... Um, <laughs> you know, it just needs to get across the idea of the song. And that can mean different things. Mm -hmm. um, if it's just a, a simple ballad, mm -hmm. just piano and voice is fine. If it's meant to be in a style... Mm -hmm. For example, um, for Bronx Tale, a lot of the songs are in a sort of a doo-wop or a Motown yeah. kind of a style. And it's hard to get the sense of what the style is without a little bit more orchestration. Mm -hmm. So Alan, for his demos, would lay down a bass line and a backbeat just so that you get the sense of, here's the feel, because the style is in the feel. And without the feel, you're not quite sure what you're hearing or how it relates. Mm -hmm. um, I would say that that's about as far as you need to go. Mm -hmm. um, bass, drum, keyboard, yeah. and maybe some strings laid in. I if a if a choir like if a, if a, if grouped voices are necessary to get the idea across, maybe maybe that it could just be your voice three yeah. or four times. You don't yeah. need to get you don't need to hire actors necessarily. Yeah. But um, as long as a, a listener gets what it is. That's that's all it needs to be. It doesn't need to be more than that. Okay. So <laughs> um, that's for okay. that's for like internal. Yeah. Right. Once you want to start sending it to producers or to investors or that kind of thing, okay, yeah. um, 
then you probably need to go into a studio and come up with something a little bit more complete mm -hmm. because you're looking for the opinion of people who are not on the inside. Okay. I, so when you say on the inside, that's good. Who do you mean by on the inside? So, so I, 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 mm -hmm. it's a, putting together theater, it's a sausage yeah. factory, yeah. right? It's so many different hands and so many different scraps of things, and it's ugly. Yeah. It's, it's lyrics that are sometimes dummy lyrics and yeah. music that's half fleshed out and singers who are maybe seeing the material for the first time when they're doing the, mm -hmm. you know, it's very hard to get perfect circumstances and very costly mm -hmm. to get perfect circumstances. Uh, when you're in the early stages, you might not have the time or the money um, or the, you know, the contacts that you need to do what you need to do. Mm -hmm. And so you know that what you're putting together is an approximation and not the actual thing. Um, for people who are inside the factory with you, your, your direct producer, your director, your collaborator, yeah. uh, a set designer, like people yeah. who just need to know, here's, what, yeah. here's the material that I'm working with, yeah. um, fast and loose is good enough. For people who need to be dazzled and yeah. need to be sold, then you need to dazzle and sell them. And then you want to get the famous actor to sing, or you yeah. want to get... I, you know, a little bit more of a of an orchestrated feel, uh, or you want to go into a studio and have, you know, your friend who actually plays violin lay down some string section, mm -hmm. string things, or a real horn player yeah. come in and lay in a horn line so that it feels a little bit more, um, complete. Mm -hmm. uh, but as I said, it does get costly, yeah. and with all the other costs of putting on a show of, yeah. you know, rights and yeah. lawyers and. Uh, hiring actors to do readings and all that sort of thing, um, unless you have money behind you already, then you don't want to overextend yourself before you know that you have something that is going gonna, is gonna to pay you back eventually. So. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah that's, that's good information. Because uh -huh. you know, I, think, I think a lot of composers wrestle with this idea of where and when and yeah. how, and then I'm going to rewrite it, and then I'm... <laughs> and I'm yeah, <laughs> you know... Um, well, this has been fascinating, and I, I, I wish we could talk forever. i got to get ready for the next one, but I, I certainly hope other writers and actors and producers and directors, because you've given a lot for everybody to think about with the process, mm -hmm. um, learns as much as I know I have already um, in this 90 minutes talking. So I really appreciate you coming down and, and sharing your wealth of knowledge. I wish you luck with uh, Love Never Dies on tour all over America. Thank you. And, and you know, <laughs> apropos of this conversation, I urge everybody, like, go listen to the cast album yeah. and then go see the show when it comes to your city yeah. and you will see this process in action. You will see yeah. huge changes. If you have any interest in the musical theater, this is sort of a, like, can't miss opportunity to see what somebody like Andrew Lloyd Webber, how even somebody at that level can be so flexible and so um, willing to make the changes necessary to make a show work. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for being so generous with your knowledge and, and friendly. And, uh, and, and best of luck with Beatsville and your other upcoming projects. Thank so. you so much. Okay, thanks. Here is another song with lyrics by Glenn Slater, this time written with Alan Menken. This is Out of Your Head from Bronx Tale, currently running on Broadway. And the first time I heard this song, it just felt so immediately classic. Uh, so it kind of shows a different variety, but to me it felt like from an older school of Broadway. That girl right there Am I the only one who sees Those lips, that hair Those eyes that 
Chance would never come again. I say a prayer. Take one deep breath and count to ten. Then I know it. Something tells me she must feel the same. See, don't blow it. Simply ask her name. I must be out of my head, but I've got it as bad as can be. God help me, she is so fine, but it's crossing a line. Girls like her don't happen. Girls like her can't happen. Girls like her don't happen to guys like me. Up close. And now we have another excerpt from interview with book writer Rick Ellis. And remember, all of these full unedited interviews are available at broadwaybullet.com. So here we join the interview in session. Well, we could either end this, or I have thought of, I think, one other thing that you could give if you are so inclined to share your information. Well, I, that I'm well, I'm dying of curiosity now. Is, <laughs> okay. is, it, is it my inside leg measurement? What would you uh, What would you like to well, know? Well, <laughs> adaptations are so popular, and you have been successful doing many different types of adaptations. You know, the adaptation of the life of these singers using the material to the adaptation of a TV show, a different property into a different story, a musical I, I to the adaptation the of a book to the thing, and, and yeah. now Shares Life. I mean. 
Do you have any advice or any common threads that you've seen adapting to give advice to other people who are stuck with this task of, because sometimes it is, sometimes some writers, I've heard this story many times, that not just you, that they get pestered, they get stuck, let me, you know, write this, do this adaptation. Um, well, it's an interesting mm -hmm. exercise. I think I, I've, I've always hankered to do a Chekhov. Um, I, I, what is it about adaptation? It's a, it's a good question. I hadn't really thought about, uh, uh, I hadn't really thought about it in the way that you just presented it. So, um, so it's a, it's a good question. So kudos, kudos on a, on a good question. Now I have to actually think for a minute. What do I think about adapting? I, I, I said before, I think of myself really sort of more of a collagist than a writer. I mean, Lynn Miranda is a writer. Stephen Sondheim's a writer. Tom Stoppard is a writer. Tony Kushner is a writer. I, I, Marshall Brickman is a writer. You know, these are people who somehow always know the right thing to do right off the bat. Or at least that's mm -hmm. how it appeals to me, appears to me. Although, interestingly, um, uh, Stoppard says uh, when he was writing Coast of Utopia that um, he, was, he, he wrote the first act of something and then was stumped and couldn't figure out how to actually get to the second act. And this was, you know, quite late in his career. You know, a writer of some note <laughs> and uh, an achievement. Uh, and he said, and then it occurred to me that the reason I couldn't figure out what came next was I had written the second act. So I went and wrote a first act for that, for the act that I thought was the first act, which of course was turned out to be the second act. It's an, it's, I think that's fascinating. Um, if some, like, so somebody like Tom Stoppard could be confused. It takes a lot of pressure off the rest of us. <laughs> knowing what we're doing. Um, but uh, I think with regard specifically to adapting someone's life, like Jersey Boys or The Share Show, um, or adapting a novel like Peter and the Starcatchers into Peter and the Starcatcher, um, or adapting a, you know, The Addams Family based on a TV show you mm -hmm. said, but in fact it wasn't based Movie on the TV comic show. Strip, yeah. It was based only. It was specifically not referencing <laughs> the television show because we didn't have the rights yeah. <laughs> to do that. We were only referencing the two-dimensional characters that were presented by Charles Adams in New Yorker cartoons. And the interesting challenge mm -hmm. there to try to breathe a third dimension into characters that we uh, that we learned about in two dimension, in a in a single frame where nothing comes before, nothing comes after, and there are no consequences. How do you how do you adapt that idea into a living, breathing thing with a beginning and a middle and an end was a particular challenge. But I think the 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 general answer is always the same. You need an organizing principle. How are you going to tell your story once you once you know what the story is, or let's say if you're adapting a, a story. Um, you know, Jersey Boys wasn't a story. Jersey Boys was a thousand disparate anecdotes mm -hmm. told by guys who'd been telling those anecdotes for 50 years. Well, it was, it was a, made for a great lunch, but it didn't make for a great show because there was no, it, there was just disparate anecdotes. How do you figure out which to include and which to discard? How do you figure out how to, the, how to organize the ones that you're including in such a way that you can start here and end here and have people feel like they've been on that word that I hate to use, journey. But, you know, stories have to have an arc. And characters have to have that too. So 
you figure out how to do it. And the, the how is the organizing principle. And within the organizing principle is your principle of inclusion, your principle of exclusion. And it's good to actually um, make those lists of material and then to put, have a pile that you want, really want to use and have a pile that you're not going to use. And, um, and then take the pile of things that you, that you are in love with and figure out how to tell that story. And that's your organizing principle. The organizing principle for Jersey Boys was, oh, it's a, the, the, the band's called The Four Seasons. There are four guys. There were, Mother Nature also gave us four seasons. That's sort of neat. Mm -hmm. um, it's not profound, but it's <laughs> neat. The, you know, the, 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 the four seasons um, mirror the evolution of the group. The, the, you know, the, 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 uh, the birth of the group, the spring, the, the full bloom of success, the summer, the, the dissolution of the original quartet, the fall, and then the winter of Frankie's discontent, as it were. And, um, and that neat structure advocated that one of, one of the four band members would sort of be our host for each of those four acts. And then we, and if that's true, then they needn't agree with each other, which of course in talking to the guys we realized never happened. So we started out trying to figure out what the true, true, true story was. And then one day the light bulb was, well, why should we figure out what the true story is? Why can't they just each present their own story and say that it's my story is the true story and let the audience play along becomes a little bit more interactive that way. So that was the, became the organizing principle for Jersey Boys. Um, for um, uh, for Peter and the Starcatcher, the organizing principle became the you know Act One takes place on a ship, mm. a dark and claustrophobic environment. Act Two takes place on an island where there's air and sun and light introduced for the first time in this young kid's life, and all the other stuff that did from the novel that didn't fit into that neat mm -hmm. basic um, determination was discarded. There were seven, seven ships in the novel. There is, there's fights happening. People are, all the characters are flying around and sword fighting and dueling. There's not one sword fight in Peter and the Starcatcher. Um, you know, in, in the play. Yeah. Um, uh, Making wonderful use of just the anticipation build. You know, the, the, well, the glorious I, you know, moment where he lifts up in the air about... About to, to fly, about to fly, but 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 we, so we had a very very clear organizing principle for Peter and the Starcatcher, uh, and and uh, you know and I think I think I'm trying to do it with, I'm trying to do it with Cher. It's, it's challenging, uh, it's challenging when it's just you and uh, there's you know the songs already exist. So uh, it 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 was it was great when Jason uh, came on to the project and there was somebody to talk to because when you're if you're talking something into existence. I find it's it's better to talk to someone other than yourself. If you're just talking to yourself, <laughs> it's a it's a lonely conversation. And and it was the first thing that I've worked on, you know, ever since the time I was 24 years old, uh, where Roger wasn't there to tell me what to do. You know, I had the great I had the great blessing of living with someone who who was this encycl with encyclopedic knowledge of everything to do with the theater. And so you know. If I ever asked him a question in five minutes, there were like six books on my desk to read, or you know, or he would know, and uh, you know, or he would say, "Well, don't do it that way. Do it that way." Or here's this is this would be funny, and and um, you know, it was a, it was 
it was great to have um, to have that resource, uh, you know, at my fingertips for my entire adult life. So uh, as as long and lengthy as it is, you know, as it has been, <laughs> I am getting like buried as does the guy sort, who does called Rick. Does that sort of answer your adaptation question? <laughs> yes, now? very, okay. and, and and far more eloquently than I ever would have expected for you doing this off the top of your head. <laughs> I, I think you do yourself a disservice the, saying that you haven't head. studied playwriting. All your answers. My, the way, I, you, the way I've studied it is by going to see a shitload of plays, you know, and loving yeah. the theater, you know. You watch and watch and watch and watch and watch. I think if I know something about musicals, it's because I've I've seen so many up close and worked on so many and listened to the arguments mm. of the people putting them together and and you know tried to really pay attention and go back and back and back and back to see it, which was a luxury because I worked at an ad- advertising agency where I could stand in the back whenever I wanted to at at a at a at a show and I could just be there. I could watch. Jerome Robbins in rehearsal for Jerome Robbins Broadway. I could watch Bob Fosse in rehearsal for Big Deal. I could watch uh, Tommy Toon in rehearsal for uh, my one and only and, and Grand Hotel and Will Rogers Follies. I, I, I could I could I could watch Trevor Nunn in rehearsal for Sunset Boulevard. I could watch uh, t- you know uh, George Wolfe in rehearsal for Angels in America. I, I was so blessed to be able to just be a fly on the wall. And and see and try just try to absorb absorb absorb. I mean, uh, you know, just some osmosis has to happen. Um, or even you just think, oh, I oh well, that doesn't work. I must remember not to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's the great thing. It's 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 why theater is sort of a passed down uh, art. You can't write you can't write it down, <laughs> and you can't you can't. Um, codify it, but you can steal. You know, you <laughs> steal see, like an artist. You Isn't steal. That a book? You know, you see. Oh my God, I, I, that's fantastic! I'm going to use that sometime. I mean, that's what I mean about collages. Yeah. I'm on the subway and I hear somebody say something, and it just sticks in my ear. I, I just, I write it down and think that's going to. That, that's a. That's a. I, I'm. That's going to be a line in something. You know, um, uh, that kind of stealing. I mean. You know, uh, nicking, as they would say in 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 in, uh, in the UK. Um, I think that's whatever. That's what we all do. It's all friendly uh, thievery, isn't it? I think it is. Anyway, that sounds like a good conclusion to an incredible uh, interview. And and again, mm. you for for someone who claims to have not studied, you sure ha- have mentioned many specific examples. And put things into very clear words that I, as a playwright, can understand and take knowledge. And I, I bet tons of others will also. And I think a lot of things for actors to get a different perspective on the people to whom they're speaking their words. <laughs> as, as bulky as that statement was. I, I am honored to have had the chance to talk with you and... and and meet you and, and more. Keep going, advice. keep going. And I'm honored to be the guy that called you an old fart. <laughs> Did you? Not. I thought that was me. I, you called me an old fart. <laughs> no, see, I no. The voices in my head around. are so loud; it's hard for me to know sometimes who's actually speaking. I'm. <laughs> no, I, I am always inspired when I know that. Thank you still for thank you ahead. thank you for having me on. But let's remind everyone of the actual point of this, which is to Jersey come see boys. Jersey Boys yes. at New World Stages. 
beginning November 22nd. Yes. Jersey Boys, you know, uh, written by Marshall Brickman and, uh, and with songs by uh, Bob Gordio and Bob Crew and uh, the life of the great Frankie Valli and, the, and the, uh, the Four Seasons. It's good. It's a good show. Maybe I'll be able to actually get into it when I get back. When it was hot, I couldn't get a ticket. I just couldn't get it. Well, you know, that's the essence of heat, is that, is that eventually it, it, it wanes, yeah. which is why you're going to, one day you'll be sorry you have that tattoo on your arm. Well, you know, it's not, it's a whole bunch of different tattoos. I also think just visually it's like one of the best kick-ass logos. It is a kick-ass logo. Yeah, and I, the, to me, even the logo means more than even beyond the show itself. It's a kick-ass logo. Yeah. yeah it's, it's quite brilliant. Um, yeah. Well, okay. okay. Pleasure. Thanks. Curtain call. Well, that wraps up this episode and season eight. Uh, if you're out there, I'm looking for story ideas. I am going to be back in New York very quickly. I will be doing interviews at the Dramatist Guild Foundation from May 7th through the 11th. I'm looking for stories. So if you know somebody really great and interesting I should talk to, uh, drop me an email at broadwaybullet.com nyc at gmail.com and uh, since I've had them there so quick we're going to be right back with season 9 very soon see you then